reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven... There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. The word of the Lord. So today as we continue in our series of the Foundations of Faith in the Letter to the Hebrews, we arrive at today's topic, which is the church and worship, and the foundational aspects of coming to church and worshiping God together in a community. So being here in worship, I am reminded that over my whole life, I have been to a lot of worship services. I was raised in church. I basically have been to church every Sunday of my life. And there was a time early on when it was twice on Sunday, on Wednesdays. I've been to many different worship services and styles. Like I've said before, I grew up in the Assemblies of God Church. So I've been to some very Pentecostal, charismatic style services. I had an opportunity to attend a Roman Catholic Christmas Eve midnight mass. After our sec- we lost our second child to a miscarriage, I opted to attend an Episcopal church in downtown Sacramento just to go somewhere different, shake it up, feel like worship, feel worship in a different way. For a seminary assignment, I went to an Armenian Orthodox church where everything, the whole service was done in Armenian, except for the announcements, oddly enough. He spoke English for the announcements. 
And of course, I've been to numerous Presbyterian services, which don't quite have the flair of the Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, charismatic stuff, but definitely worthy and great services in their own right. I've been to summer camps. I've sung songs with kids. I've sung silly songs with kids. I've done silly motions on a stage. I've paddled out in the middle of a lake with a bunch of students, and we sang songs under the stars in the lake. Now, hopefully, you might be wondering, all right, Pastor Greg, now tell us what's the right way to worship. Sadly, that's not what I'm here for today. If you've come for me to give you the ticket for what the right way to worship is, that's not the goal of this service. But I thought I'd highlight before we get started some of the ways that our confessions and church fathers have told us what should be included in worship, what's important, what should drive us. So the first one I want to read is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is a foundational Presbyterian confession. In chapter 21, it says, The ordinary worship of God includes the reverent and attentive reading of the Scriptures, the sound preaching and conscientious hearing of the Word in obedience to God with understanding and faith, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, and the proper administration and the right receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, Then there are religious oaths and vows, solemn fasting, and thanksgiving on special occasions. Worship should include these at appropriate times and should be done in a holy and religious manner. What I love about what this confession points out is that when we come to worship, yes, you hear God's words preached. Yes, you hear the singing of the Psalms, but it's not just about us on stage giving something out to you all. You have to Be open to understand it and to be open to receiving it and to digest it in your hearts and your minds. The Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the denomination that we're a part of, has in their essentials number five, which talks about what worship is in this way. It says, The true church is composed of all persons who, through saving faith in Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, are united together in the body of Christ. The church finds her visible yet imperfect expression in local congregations, where the word of God is preached in its purity and the sacraments are administered in their integrity, where spiritual discipline is practiced and where loving fellowship is maintained. For her perfecting, she awaits the return of her Lord. And what I love about what this essential explains is that it's in this local congregation. It's us gathered together where the church finds its imperfect expression. We're not going to get it right all the time. Things are going to be different. Things are going to change. But like it said at the end, is that our ultimate hope is the perfection that we're going to find in Jesus when he comes and returns to judge everybody and to bring his church together again. So this is kind of the idea that I'd like to walk through today is what worship is, why do we do it, why do we come together, and then what is our hope for the future? And if I had to sum it up in a main point, it would be this. Worship is one of the defining characteristics of God's faithful throughout all ages. It is essential for our discipleship. Now as in the past, it is only a shadow that points to Christ and the true worship before God. So to begin, we talk about worship is something that has been happening with God's faithful people throughout all ages. You just have to go back into the beginning of your Bible to see that people were offering sacrifices to God as a form of worship. Right after Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, they tell, we hear the story about how they offered sacrifices. 
The law wasn't given at that point. They had no idea really what of God required of them, but they said, this is the way that I, I want to worship God. Noah, after he comes out of the ark, he builds an altar, sacrifices and offer worship to God that way. Abraham would offer sacrifices to God. And in one of the most important images in all of Scripture, Abraham sacrifices a bunch of animals and lines up the pieces side by side. And he has this vision of God as a smoking fire pot walking through the middle of it, establishing the covenant between him and Abraham that God would make Abraham a blessing to the nations and to give him multitudes of children. And then ultimately, when God gives the law to Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai in the wilderness, the sacrifices and worship are accepted as God's ways to worship God and that the faithful return their thanks to God. But it also establishes and defines the Israelite people as God's covenant community. So the sacrifices aren't just a way to give worship to God, but it says, you, you are God's people. God's people do these things. But the author of Hebrews identifies in the verse we read today in verses 3 through 4, says that those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. And it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But there's something missing from the sacrifice that even though it's offered as worship to God and thanks to God and a response to what God has offered, there's something missing that it can't take away sins because it had to be done annually over and over and over again. The actual image and the day that the author of Hebrews has in mind is the Israelite Day of Atonement. If you go back and read Leviticus chapter 16, you will get the literal gory details of everything that had to happen on that day. It was the responsibility of Aaron or whoever the high priest was to go in once a year into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice to cover for all of the sins of all of the people. But even before he could do that, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins so he could even go into the Holy of Holies. Leviticus tells us Aaron had to sacrifice a bull for his own sins. Go in, sprinkle the blood on the altar. Then he'd come back out. He'd get two goats and cast lots for the two. One would be the scapegoat that Pastor Mike mentioned recently that all the sins of the people would be placed on and those sins would be taken out into the wilderness. The other one, the poor goat chosen, would be the one that would be sacrificed. And that goat would be sacrificed and its blood taken into the Holy of Holies and blood sprinkled on the altar to atone for the sins of the people. And that would happen year after year after year. Betty Beeson, after the first service, came up to me. She said, I never really thought about it. Like, did anybody ever go in there and clean that up? Like, what kind of reminder would that be to go in every year to see, well, that was last year. It's still there. We still have to do this. But as the author of Hebrews is arguing here, these sacrifices were never going to be enough. They couldn't completely manage all of the Israelites and all of humanity's sin problem. Now, to help explain this, the author reaches into Psalm 40 to show that even in the scriptures, it tells us it's these sacrifices were never enough. It says, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them although they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, the author of Hebrews saying that this is Jesus saying this, here I am, I have come to do your will. 
He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What the author of Hebrews is trying to connect for us here is that the sacrifices performed in the past were not sufficient, but that they were ultimately pointing to what Jesus Christ would come and accomplish here on earth. This isn't like a bait and switch kind of situation where you start having a conversation with somebody, then you suddenly realize like, wait, they're actually trying to sell me something? Like God's not trying to do that. This is, you got to learn the basics. You got to start at the beginning before you can fully understand what's to come later. I've been getting a deeper understanding of this as I've been helping Aurora, my oldest daughter, with her math. Now, I've, I took math classes. I, I got some math in elementary school. I can't remember specific le- le- lessons, but somehow I ended up knowing math. And so now as I'm helping her through it and walking her with, well, you got to do addition and subtraction before you can get to multiplication and division. Okay, like this makes sense. I can help her with that. And then there's even some moments where I'm reading a question. She's like, Daddy, this is hard. And I read it and I'm like, wait, they're trying to get her to think kind of like algebra. They're trying to get her to solve for something that's missing. But they don't, you know, put the A's or X's or letters in there to mess her up. But they're trying to hint at what's coming later to prepare her for that. And I can see where that's going She can't see it yet, but I'm trying to encourage her to think about it. But she needs the foundational aspects of math before she can move on and understand and appreciate what's coming down the line. That's what the author of Hebrews is showing here, is that this had to happen first. The sacrifices needed to happen to demonstrate what Christ would do for all of us and what Christ would complete. John Calvin, in his commentary on the book of Hebrews, says that he, the author of Hebrews, confirms again what he had previously said, that the law was not useless, nor its ceremonies unprofitable. For though there was not in them the image of heavenly things, finished, as they say, by the last touch of an artist, yet the representation, such as it was, was of no small benefit to the fathers. Basically, what John Calvin is saying is that it's necessary. It's not finished by the last stroke of a painter saying that's done, but the outlines and the traces of what was to come could be seen in the sacrifices that were being offered. Thankfully, today, we're not here to offer a new sacrifice. We're not here to offer bulls and goats. The sanctuary is not set up for that. It'd be a little bit messy. I don't do well with blood. (laughs) Courtney, in one of her anatomy classes, brought home one time in a Ziploc bag, a piece of a sheep's brain. And she's like, look at this. This is awesome. I'm like, get that out of the house. Don't do well with that kind of stuff. But honestly, coming here today is a sort of sacrifice, right? There's a lot of things you could have done this morning. We set our clocks forward an hour. You could have slept in an extra hour. You could have got some work done around the house. You could have met another friend for coffee. You could have gone and just gotten breakfast on your own. But by coming here today and sacrificing our time, offering our tithes and offerings, we are connected with those who have been worshiping God since the very beginning. Yeah, it looks different. Yeah, we do different stuff. Yeah, we have Christ as a fuller understanding of what God is doing. But there is a chain going from us all the way back. 
understanding that worshiping God is essential. And that when we come together to do it as a group, we all benefit from it. And that's moving on to the next point, that worship is essential for our discipleship. It's essential for us in our walk with God and forming us into the people God wants us to be. In the reading uh, of Hebrews 10, the end of verse 14, it says, By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Every time we come into church, every time we come to worship, and we choose to connect with this community, with God's people, we take another step in our discipleship journey. Like I said, I've been to a lot of worship services. I've heard a lot of sermons. I've sung a lot of songs. I've memorized quite a few verses. But if you pressed me to say, hey, can you give me like five sermons specifically that you remember that have affected you? I'd be hard-pressed to come up with five. Can't say I remember those things specifically, but that doesn't mean I haven't been affected by the time in worship that I've spent with God's people, that I've spent on a Sunday morning or Sunday night or a Wednesday night. The, in the ancient times, in the early church, there were these people called the Desert Fathers. And they were a part of the church in the cities at one point, and they kind of realized that Maybe being in the city amidst all the distractions wasn't the best place to find God. So they went out into the wilderness and set up shacks and hung out in caves. And they became to be referred to as the Desert Fathers. And people realized that they had a lot of wisdom out there because they were outside of the noise of what was going on in the city. So people started to go out there and ask them questions and to understand what, how they could connect with God better by being out there. And they were regarded for their wisdom. One of the stories about one of these desert fathers says, a man went out to talk to one of the elders, to one of the fathers out there. He said, my father, I frequently consult with the elders and they give me advice for the salvation of my soul. Yet of all that they say, I can remember nothing. Now it happened that there were two vessels standing empty beside the elder to whom he spoke. The elder said to the man who had come, he said, go take one of those vessels Put water in it, wash it, pour the water out of it, and then put it back where you found it. The brother did so, and then he said, Then the old man said, Bring both of those vessels here and look at them carefully. Now tell me, which one's cleaner? Surely, said the man who came to ask the question, The one that is cleaner is the one I just washed. Then the old man said to him, Even so it is, my son with the soul which frequently hears the words of God. Even although the memory retained none of them, yet is that soul pure than the one who never seeks for spiritual counsel. Trust me, I won't be offended if I come to you next week and say, hey, what did I preach about? You'd be like, um, something? Dishwashing? But I can know that just by being here and the continual reinforcement of working with God's people and being with God's people, that we get God's word in our heart and we are shaped and changed by it. We begin to be ever molded closer to Jesus together as our hearts are tuned together. This is why the author of Hebrew describes it as those who are being made holy. He doesn't say that those who are holy, that suddenly we've been transformed into holy beings, perfect who understand everything. No, we are consistently by our actions being made holy as we interact with God's people. 
The fancy theological word for this is sanctification. Being made more saintly, being clean, being made more into the image that God wants us to be. I had the opportunity to go to Israel after I graduated from college. And one of the places I got to visit was the Dead Sea. And close to the Dead Sea is the area where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, appropriately named. And the name of the place is Qumran. Can you throw that picture up for me, Jeff? And while we were there, if you know the kind of geography of where the Dead Sea is, it is the lowest point on earth. It's one of the hottest places on earth. The Dead Sea is called Dead for a Reason. And so while we were there, we visited around Qumran, but then our guide said, we're going to hike to the top of that mountain. Follow me. So we all as a group followed and got behind him and hiked up through one of the hottest, driest places on earth. And thankfully, I made it to the top. That's the Dead Sea behind me. I would not have been able to make it to the top really if it wasn't without the support of the group that was there with me. We were all different ages, stages in life, different modes of fitness in our bodies, and honestly, some of the people older than me made it up the mountain faster than me. But we all supported and worked together to encourage each other to get to the top of the mountain. And once we were there, we found this, which was a stack of rocks, which was stacked by people who had been there before us. And so once we got up there, we realized we're part of like a much bigger group who have done this, who have encouraged each other to get to the top of this mountain. In worship today, we all kind of work like that, encouraging each other to get closer to Jesus, to get to the top of the mountain. And once we get there, we realize we're part of what the author of Hebrews will later call the great cloud of witnesses. Those who have come before us who are urging us on, encouraging us, who have set the markers for the road ahead of us to say, follow this path, go this way. This is where God wants you to go. So we come to worship. It's essential for our discipleship because it's the path that we're all walking together, that we need each other to support each other, to grow closer to Jesus together. But finally, there should honestly be an element of humility, though, whenever we gather together in worship. That not only have people have been doing it for ages and ages before us, not only is it essential for our discipleship, but the author of Hebrews points out that these things are just a shadow. These things are just an image of the greater thing that is to come. You may be familiar with the ancient philosopher Plato, and he had this allegory of the cave you may be familiar with. Can you throw that picture up for me, Jeff? He had this allegory for how people understand the world. And his allegory is this. Imagine there are some people who are chained to a wall in a cave. And the only light from that cave is from a fire that is set behind them. And they can't see the fire. And then between the fire and them are people walking. And sometimes as the people are walking, they're carrying things. And it projects shadows on the wall in front of the people who are chained to the wall. And for the people chained to the wall, those shadows are all that is real. And they start to name those things. Well, that's a horse. That's a jug. That's a bird. And for them, the shadows are the reality. Now imagine if one of those prisoners was freed. 
And they could get up and turn around and be like, wait a second, that stuff's not real. These people are carrying things. There's this fire that's projecting, and those things instead are real. And then imagine if that person who was a prisoner suddenly could get outside the cave. And then they'd go up into a world that was completely different. And the sun was the one that was providing light. And they all suddenly realized that everything in the cave was just a shadow. It was just an image of what was true and what was real. That there was greater truth to learn beyond just the shadows that were being projected in front of them. I brought one of my uh, most favorite things from home. This is the Beatles' Abbey Road record. Now, one of the interesting things is there are lots of ways I could listen to this music. I have my phone. I could stream it. Maybe I have a cassette tape. Maybe I have a CD. I like to listen to it on vinyl. Now, is the point of having vinyl just the stuff that it's made of? The cardboard, the vinyl record, the liner that's inside to keep the record safe? It's nice to look at, and people like to collect these things because they're pretty. But if I buy this, I want to listen to the music. It's not about the pieces that it's made of. It's not about the construction completely. It's about the music that's contained inside. It's what John, Paul, Ringo, and George are doing. That's what I want to hear. These things are just a shadow of what's contained inside the record. Everything we do in church, everything we're doing right now as it was even in the past and as it will be in the future until Jesus comes is only just a shadow, just a reflection and a brief glimpse of the true worship that's going on in heaven before Jesus and before the throne of God. Paul will write in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Even Paul identifies it. Here we only see as in a reflection. We only know in part. So everything that we do here should be taken with a grain of salt and with humility. That's why I like that the EPC Essential says that the local church is the visible yet imperfect expression. Yeah, we're going to get things wrong from time to time. Yeah, we're going to mess things up. Something's going to come on down the line that's going to change the way that we worship and give us a more deeper understanding of God. If you went back in time to see how our ancestors worshiped, you'd probably feel pretty out of place. You wouldn't even have to go back that far in time, I think, to feel out of place. But since the beginning, people have been continuing to worship God in ways that are only a brief flicker of what that true worship is before the throne. They made sacrifices wherever an altar can be made. They did sacrifices in the tabernacle, sacrifices at the temple. They ultimately ended up doing worship and scripture reading in synagogues, gathered around in small buildings. 
We would get to doing worship and hearing God's word in churches, but there are some people, they can't meet in church, so they do worship in homes. They sing songs in homes because they can't openly worship. Sure, we may feel like we have this fuller revelation of worship today, but we're still a long way off from what worship is going to look like in heaven. And we look forward to partaking in that worship. We should be humble now and accept that these are just shadows on a wall preparing us for the moment we are fully released from these chains. And ultimately, we need to be focused on Jesus and his lordship in our lives as we come before him in worship. Like I mentioned at the beginning, I got to attend this Armenian Orthodox worship service as an assignment in seminary. And I got there on time, and when I showed up, I was the only person in the sanctuary. And I sat there kind of waiting for service to start. Nobody had showed up yet, and suddenly the priest just comes out, starts doing worship, and nobody else is in the room. People start to trickle in, and about by the half point of service, everybody was finally like in the worship service. I thought, wow, that seems mean. Like, why would you not show up on time for worship? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized, like, this is a perfect example of what worship in heaven is like and what we're doing here. Worship is going on all the time, whether we show up or not. And on Sunday, we participate in a brief moment worshiping God with all of the creatures and angels of heaven and everybody who's up there. This is just this brief glimmer, but it's essential for our discipleship here on earth. To help us get our minds around that a little bit, as I conclude this service, I want to read from the book of Revelation. In chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, John is given this vision of what worship looks like in heaven. And so as I read, I want you all to close your eyes and to imagine yourself there and realize that just for a moment, we're right there with them. This is Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 6. It says, In front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle, And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You can open your eyes. That's the glimmer of what we're participating in. People have been participating in that since the very beginning that they could understand God in their lives. 
And we get to join with them in that worship. We get to join in it together as we all take steps on this pilgrimage towards heaven and towards Jesus. And people will continue to do it long after we're gone in forms very different than what we're doing now. But all of us from the beginning until the very end are joining in with that heavenly worship. So hopefully today you've got a grasp of the point that I was trying to lead us to. That worship is one of the defining characteristics of God's faithful throughout all ages. That it is essential for our discipleship. And now as in the past, it is only a shadow that points to Christ and the true worship before God. How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night And through the darkness Your loving kindness Tore through the shadows of my soul The work is finished The end is written Jesus Christ, my living hope Who could imagine So great a mystery What heart could fathom Such boundless grace The God of angels Stepped down from glory To where my sin And bear my shame The cross is spoken I am forgiven The King of kings Calls me his own Beautiful Savior I'm yours forever Jesus Christ My living Death has lost its grip on me You have broken 